welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God. His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Monday, October 30th, we are studying Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 to 39. In today's text, the author of Hebrews warns his congregation against apostasy from the Christian faith, and he impresses upon them the need for endurance in their confidence in Christ. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us returning guest, Pastor Andy Wright. Pastor Wright serves at St. John's Lutheran Church in Topeka, Kansas. Pastor Wright, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Great to be back on the program. As we get started today, Pastor, give us some context. What should we know about the letter to the Hebrews and anything leading up to this section of chapter 10 that'll help us with the text? Absolutely. Yeah, I since we're uh, in chapter 10 already, I'll save some of the kind of the really beginning stuff. Um, I know you guys have talked about that at length. Uh, but as we're looking at this section, it's kind of helpful for us to kind of get a thought progression. One of the, the commentators of um, on the book of Hebrews, um, John Kleinig, he, he, and he's not the only one to, who have done this. He sees the book of Hebrews, or the letter to the Hebrews, excuse me, as a sermon. And I think there's something to be said for that. And really, as I think we, we see that a lot in our text for today, but as we look at then kind of that thought process, as we're listening, if we think about listening to the, the epistle to the Hebrews, we see that right before this in verse 25, we have this ending of Jesus, kind of this whole discussion of him as the high priest in that liturgical ministry. And that and that's something we always need to not even keep in the back of our mind, but keep kind of at, at kind of underpinning a lot of what, especially as we get into this text, but but knowing who Jesus is. And then kind of then as we then start addressing some of the stuff that this text talks about. Now then this section kind of picks up um, with verse 26 and it goes, it can even go to uh, chapter 12, verse 29. Some commentators, they they just, there's different ways that you can group it. Um, Just going with, I like Kleinig's outline. I've just used that before. Um, He goes to 29. I think that's a good, 1229 is a good stopping place for kind of this next section. Um, and that he he titles that as faith in Christ as the basis for hope in God, and I think that that's a great way of, of looking at it. And even as we have some harsh words in our text today, that there, that still really rings through, um, even when he addresses some of these serious things. Now, going to that immediate context, then um, we have some words of comfort, some words of exhortation, some words of encouragement, and there's even some overlap in some of those as well. Sometimes, what does uh, um, encouragement? Um, where does the uh, exhortation begin and the encouragement begin, or where does one end or one doesn't? Um, that's kind of a, an interesting point. That I think maybe we can bring that up even later too, of how that that fits into things. But we kind of see this this comfort and uh, leading up to the text, this exhortation leading up to the text, encouragement, and now then, as we'll even have then these exhortations or warnings, then we'll see that in there as well in our in our pericope or our section of 26 to, to 39. And then there's, we can even divide that up into kind of some, some subunits as well, um, kind of a, a penalties against sin, uh, a reward for endurance and salvation. 
rather than destruction. So God's final word in our section is going to be a word of comfort and a word of salvation um, in Christ and, and his, preser- uh, per- his perseverance and our endurance resting, resting in Christ. All right, with that in- introduction in mind, let's just jump right into this text. This is Hebrews chapter 10, beginning at verse 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment, do you think, will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days, when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith." and preserve their souls. That is our text. That's Hebrews 10, verses 26 to 39. So, Pastor Wright, there's some some difficult words to hear, uh, but some important words to hear. Uh, Just in terms of the, the overall of this section, you've got admonition and instruction, and these two things go together. Just talk about that general aspect of this text before we jump into specific words. Sure, I, I'd be glad to. This is kind of a, I don't know if you want to call it a hobby course or an area of uh, focus for me. I, I think this is an important biblical concept and one that also our Lutheran confessions bring out. Um, for instance, um, I'll use an example and then we'll get kind of into the text. So uh, in the Formula of Concord, Article 6 on the Third Use of the Law, they reference Martin Luther's sermon um, for Trinity 19, the Epistle Reading. And the epistle reading for that day is Ephesians 4, 22 to 28. And Luther begins that sermon that's referenced about, this is once again an admonition for Christians, you know, to turn away from sin and into a life of good works. And as we see then these things, when God warns us, he doesn't do so and just leave us hanging. But he also, I mean, there's always this encouragement that goes along with it. We think about um, in in Ephesians 4 or even in other uh, Ephesians um, uses this and other Pauline epistles, this idea of parakaleo, of, of calling alongside too. Um, so there's that with it, but there's this instruction that teaches us too. So God doesn't just, you know, exhort us or warn us, but he also says, here's what is godly. Here's what is good. Here's what these things are. Um, so in our text, as we now start looking at this warning and this admonishment, you know, to us, we also see this encouragement and instruction of God, um, even in the prior section, 
about um, stirring up one another to, to uh, love and good works is something that he instructs us with, holding fast the confession. I mean, th these things have an overlap. And the reason with that, too, is, is, is another thing is that, one, it's the care of God as our father. God actually want, cares for us as his people. And he doesn't want to, we're not left in his wrath and judgment, but he actually wants us to repent and he wants us to, to live a new life that he has given to us. And here in the case of the, the Hebrews as well, when we hear these words of warning first, he's talking to Christians. He's talking to people who have been enlightened. He's talking to people who have the Holy Spirit. He's talking to people who um, desire the things of God. And we assume those things because they belong to Christ. And they have been baptized. They have these things. And what we know about what it is, the, our new life in Christ. So uh, this, this warning and instruction or this admonition and instruction, I think, are, are an important part um, of, of Hebrews, this, this whole chapter or even this section, but even just as a bigger biblical concept, too, as well, when we listen to those things, that we listen to God's warning, but we also listen to how he instructs us, what is the way that we should go. Mm. All right, now as we get into this text more specifically— we're going to encounter several phrases that you have to really understand together, but at the same time, you kind of have to pull them apart to, to take them one by one. So just starting then in verse 26, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. So let's start off by talking about this matter of sinning deliberately. Again, we're going to keep expounding upon this as we go forward, but but how should we start to understand that term? Sure. I mean, you can kind of translate that that Greek word in a couple of different ways, but um, if, if we understand this kind of willingly or intentionally, I think is is a, a key thing. Uh, like Numbers 15 talks about, you know, sinning unintentionally and sinning intentionally against God. Um, it talks about those things. And historically then too, um, we even look at like kind of just how this text has been used in the church. And th there's these distinctions that are made, um, drawing, not taking this text in isolation. I mean, the book of Hebrews, we kind of, you know, use it as we see other passages like in Luke's gospel or Mark, um, you know, things about sinning against the Holy Spirit or even, you know, some of those things like that, that this is a supplemental text to that. So we're not going to draw all of our doctrine from this text. However, it can help inform and shape how we think about this greater topic of sinning w willingly and deliberately. And then kind of um, maybe at the end of this text, we can kind of look at how this is used. The Formula of Concord, or excuse me, Lutheran Confessions, the Formula of Concord, the Augsburg Confession allude to this text and bring this text up in a couple of places. And even um, Johann Gerhardt talks about this. CFW Walther talks about this. But this idea of sinning intentionally or sinning willingly or letting sin rule over us in our life. I think that's a key thing. And um, he'll kind of flush this out as we kind of start looking, you know, he, he throws this out before us too, right? Because when we hear this, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice of sin. So immediately, like, well, what do you mean by that? What is this sinning willingly, right? Or what is this sinning deliberately? But so he'll kind of flush that out. But I think for our, our purposes, this idea of, of this willful, intentional um, ruling, sin ruling in our lives, you know, there's a or ruler reigning. Sometimes you hear these as ruling sin or reigning sin to where it becomes, it defines us and we become hardened in it into a case that it really kind of is, is deliberate in that sense, you know? Um, so, I mean, that, that's a really harsh statement at first, what he's talking about, but yet, I mean, it, it perks our attention 
going back to then to that what I said initially too, if we see this as a sermon, which I think is helpful, I mean this this is gonna if you're as a listener of this, even coming from the previous section, this is gonna this is gonna pop out at you, right? I mean it's you're gonna it's like what what did you say? You know, um, now obviously God's word works and it's not dependent upon you know how we say it necessarily. However, this is the word of God, so like this at this point this kind of Christian or starts off this section in this way that's going to it's going to jump out in a way that um, I think really drives home the meaning of that of that first verse there as a as a warning warning to Christians yeah so with this you know the talk of intentional or willful sin or sin that rules over us and maybe this is just something for us to ponder as we go forward but if you have thoughts on it now I'd be happy to hear them sometimes sure. I think today we we think or it's often said something like well we're all sinners sin is sin and and it's all it's all sin so it doesn't really matter what like why why this strong warning against intentional or willful sin what makes that you know we we struggle sometimes i think to rank sin we probably shouldn't but sometimes it seems we do what makes intentional sin so bad yeah that's a good question and i think i think we we've um we've almost kind of uh become desensitized to sin if that makes sense. Yeah. And I don't mean that, that we become desensitized to sin that we, I mean, yeah, there are ways that we don't think things are sinful, but I mean that we've kind of, we've downplayed the role that sin can have in our lives. So for instance, like when we talk about, um, I mean, there are instances in the scriptures of it talking about some sin being more severe than others. Jesus says, you know, he who delivered you over or me over to you is yeah. guilty of the greater sin. Jesus says that. Now, in terms of what is due sin, right? Sin is sin in that regard, that the wages of sin is death, right? It's not the wages of some sin is death. It's not the wages of these sins, those things like that. But when we persist in this sin, and any sin then can be um, mortal in terms of it, it tears us away from Christ. It tears us away from the Holy Spirit. So the Formula of Concord, um, Article 2, which is the article on um, free will, It makes this statement, and this is in paragraph 69 through 70 of the Solid Declaration. It says, when the baptized acts act against their conscience, allowing sin to rule in them, they grieve the Holy Spirit in them and lose him. They do not need to be rebaptized, but they must be converted again, as has been said well enough before. This is certainly true in genuine conversion. A change, new emotion and movement in the intellect, will and heart must take place. The heart must perceive sin, dread God's wrath. Turn from sin, see and accept the promise of grace in Christ, have good spiritual thoughts, have a Christian pur- purpose and diligence, and fight against the flesh. Where none of these things happen or are present, there is no true conversion. Hmm. So that brings that up. Um, the apology in, in Article 4, um, talking about even justification and good works and the new life in Christ, has some similar things to say about faith not being an idle thing. Now, none of this discussion is to say that we save ourselves, right? But the point being is that we can fall away from the faith. And living in this persistent, unrepentant sin um, it is, is deadly. It's deadly into life, uh, eternal damnation. So, you know, Roman Catholics talk about mortal and venial sins, and we kind of balk at that. But historically, Lutherans, we've talked in that ways too. Luther talks like this. Chemnitz talks like this. Gerhardt does some, and he kind of uses those kind of ruling sins and things like that as well. But even the Lutheran Confessions talk about mortal sin, and CFW Walther as well. Mm-hmm. He talks about um, you know mortal sin when we persist in sin. Any sin can become a mortal sin. When you persist in it, 
and see no need for repentance of it or let that, you know, those kind of things like that. So I think that's helpful for us maybe to kind of to be okay in talking about the severity of sin in, in those regard, because um, kind of, you know, when, when things, when push comes to shove, you know, there's a difference between a Christian who's struggling with sin and a Christian who just embraces his sin. You know, we, we struggle with sin, but, but when it rules and reigns over our life into a way that we, one, see no need for repentance, or two, we just don't have any, um, you know, any idea about what God has called us to, to the new life, and don't care about that, then that's when we really need this harsh warning that the book of Hebrews preaches to us. You know, that, yeah. that it's a warning to us, be careful. You're, you're, you're heading into a, ground, a way that uh, leads to eternal death. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, I think it may be the language of, of ruling, sin ruling over us might be a helpful way for us to start to recover that a little bit more, because you see the the way that it, again, for Christians, we want the Lord to be our King, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. So if sin is ruling over me, then I think maybe that's one way that we can start to, again, appreciate this this importance and understand the gravity of what's being talked about here with this matter of sinning deliberately. Again, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, we're talking to Christians here. He's he's brought that up back in chapter 6 with some difficult words, some harsh words again against apostasy. As he continues, there's no longer a sacrifice for sins. That's going to be a challenge, I think, but let's maybe hold on to that one, and, and I think we'll come back to that as we, we see where this results. Take us then into verse 27. You've got, instead of that, instead of that sacrifice for sins, you've got a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Help us into both of those things there in verse 27. Sure. Yeah, th- this um, fury of fire, I mean, uh, you know, we can understand that in ways that are both um, accusatory and also even we see the zeal of God in that too. You know, um, God's anger burns um, against sin, uh, a fearful expectation of judgment. Um, but uh, there's this this uh, thing that he says in verse 27 that will consume the adversaries, right? So it's kind of a twofold way. A uh, fiery zeal um, that can, or an expectation of judgment, excuse me. And uh, so we know that a judgment is coming and is upon sin, but we also know that the fire will consume the adversaries of God. So there's this warning, but also in this too, that God's adversary, it's not that sin then will go unnoticed or unpunished, right? But God will, I mean, later he'll come up, he'll, talk, he'll bring up the vindication language that'll come later in this text. But it's laying out before us that those who oppose God, those who keep on sinning intentionally, um, God, uh, by rejecting his son, by rejecting what has been accomplished for them, um, you will be, you are God's enemy. You are God's enemy. Now, you know, even as we kind of, you know, just kind of keep that in our back pocket for a minute too and understand that the, what we'll come to later and we'll find comfort of who we are and what that means for us and, and God's vindication too of, of these things. But, but this, um, it, I mean, it's connected to what we, we heard a few minutes ago in, in verse 26, right? It, I mean, God, 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 God's judgment, <laughs> it's hard to say that, is... Uh, it's a real thing and and we should not be you know we're not caught off guard when god judges harshly against sin and he's right in that judgment too i mean that's something to for us to to know this as well um it's yeah. it's um yeah but because it got it that god cares for his people and there's a zeal in all of this 
like zeal against sin and a zeal for his people too. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so let's keep getting the full the full picture. In verse twenty eight, it sounds like he's bringing up an example. He's trying to he's starting a, a an argument. What happens when he? Why does he bring up this matter of the law of Moses, someone dying without mercy and the evidence of two or three witnesses? Right. So, um, you know, you think about like something like in Deuteronomy seventeen. Um, I was looking at that passage earlier. Uh, it talks about the violation of the first commandment, my service to pagan gods falling down before them. Um, so they set aside the law of Moses, right? They set aside the commandments. They set aside, you know, the first commandment. I mean, everything kind of comes back to the first commandment. You shall have no other gods. And then they were to be put to death by two or three witnesses. The the penalty of, of worshiping the false gods, the penalty of... of um, you know, remaining in this intentional violation of the first commandment was death. Um, and there was without mercy because of the offense. I mean, this was a serious thing, a serious thing that, you know, you've turned your back on God, you've turned in, towards false gods. Um, so there's some act of apostasy that he's warning them against that's been going on here. And he's he's using this example of the Old Testament to show them here too about, listen, the severity of this, you see this, um, when people set aside the law of Moses, when they set aside the commandments in order to worship false gods, and without mercy they died, they were killed just by two or three witnesses. You know, kind of it's that you know. Um, in First Corinthians, we talk about uh, these things were written for our instruction. You know that we think about these things. So even when we look at these harsh words like this, um, you know, we, I mean, we do this as as parents or any number of things. Oftentimes. You remember back when you did this, what happened to you? You remember that? You know, you remember when you, you know, uh, you know, you tried to think that you could jump off the couch. And you remember how that hurt? Yes. Remember when your sister did that? Or you remember those things like that? Think about that for a minute, right? And don't do that, right? So you want to go on in whatever case this is happening here and turn towards this apostasy and remain in this intentional willful sin. Remember what happens when you set aside the law of Moses and people died without mercy. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so from there then in verse 28, remember what happens then so that when you think about now verse 29, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who's trampled underfoot the son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. Again, so much to unpack here, but maybe just, we've got about three minutes here before the break, just before we dig into every single specific detail there in verse 29, maybe just give us the big picture of the argument. He's got the Old Testament in view, and now he says, how much worse now, given what we know? Help us in just that kind of overall scope of what he's saying. Sure. And this is a good example, too, of where we kind of see that teaching them while still warning them. So he's kind of placing them into a, a hypothetical question now. It's like, okay, you guys, you remember that now. Now, you who belong to Christ, what do you think is going to happen when, you, um, when you've profaned or trampled underfoot the Son of God, right? That happened in the Old Testament. And it's not to say that God was lesser in the Old Testament. Right. But now here, when you untrample down the Son of God himself, what do you think will happen? They were died without mercy. What do you think will happen now in this case? So kind of putting them in the, the seat, kind of, you can imagine preaching this, you know, to people, you know, people listening to this. Oh boy, you know, boy, that happened in, in Deuteronomy or that happened in the Old Testament. Now, if doing this to Jesus, what judgment is belongs with that? 
I mean, the seriousness of that. Right. Especially after he's already gotten done in the previous section talking about how Christ is superior to the right. Old Testament. He's the fulfillment of the Old Testament. So if the, right. the penalty for breaking that was this, then, well, what about now? Think about that to impress this seriousness upon his people. Maybe just get us started in the conversation then of what it means that they would be trampling underfoot the Son of God. Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Um, it's a uh, there, we we can kind of see that um, somebody who had once confessed Christ, somebody who has been baptized, brazenly dishonors him. Um, and how this happens, um, you know, it can happen in any number of ways. But this idea of of um, profaning the name of God or profaning God Himself, uh, it, it's um, this metaphor that he uses here of of um, it's, it's denying, in a sense, what God has called us to be and what he's given us in our baptism. So he doesn't list the exact thing, you know, but this this continual um, life and this this whatever this gesture is that they that he's warning them against specifically that somehow they've um, they've uh, they it's in a sense that they're putting Jesus uh, uh, trampling over him, you know, treating him with such shame and, and derision that it's just unspeakable. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and and it's possible, I think, that this could be a physical act in mind. Not certainly, it doesn't have to involve a physical act to be guilty of this sort of action. But it, it's possible that at least in some it, that there was a physical act involved, where you literally stepped on something. Yeah, I mean that's a possibility. I mean, I mean that's uh, like especially in kind of those Middle Eastern cultures, that's always been something that uh, kind of a way of dishonoring something. You step on it. You know, or you would see like even to this day they'll throw shoes at you know pictures right. or something like that. I mean, I I remember right. that um, just uh, various things on the news, but but this yeah somehow um, they they put him to public shame. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay, and so that that is the warning here for these Christians to whom the writer is preaching. We're going to keep looking at this warning and get into his encouragement more on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. We're talking to Pastor Andy Wright about Hebrews 10 this morning. We will be right back. Please stick around. Lutheran Church Extension Fund exists to support Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and church workers. How do we do this? Your investment with LCEF makes it possible for LCMS churches, schools, organizations, and church workers to receive low-cost loans for new and growing ministries. And faithful Lutherans like you, church members and church workers alike, make that possible when you invest with LCEF. Learn more at lcef.org. LCF is a nonprofit religious organization. Therefore, LCF investments are not FDIC insured bank deposit accounts. This is not an offer to sell investments or solicitation to buy. LCF will offer and sell its securities only in states where authorized. The offer is made solely by LCF's offering circular. Investors should carefully read the offering circular, which more fully describes associated risks. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Monday, October 30th. We're studying Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 to 39 with Pastor Andy Wright. He serves at St. John's Lutheran Church in Topeka, Kansas. 
Pastor Wright, prior to the break, we were talking about the various things that are mentioned in verse 29 of our section. So we've talked about those who've trampled underfoot the Son of God. The author also says that they've profaned the blood of the covenant by which, or he has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. What does that have in view, the profaning of the blood? It's a pretty vivid, vivid image there. And we see that not only um, is there this warning, but or this kind of this fleshing this out of trampling underfoot the Son of God, but also kind of desecrating what he gives, or desecrating even the means by which he gives it to um, his saving blood, treating it as something despicable. Uh, it's um, So Jesus has offered up um, his blood of the covenant. I mean, we think of kind of even some Lord's Supper language with that as well, that cleanses and sanctifies us, right? So what he's kind of getting at here too is when we want to continue in this sin, that we're not just um, we're not just shaming Jesus, but we're also shaming the sacrifice that He has won for us. I, you know, I, I I've talked with um, you know catechumens or, or just different people before. When we want to remain in sin, you have to ask yourself the question: What are you saying about the the death of Christ? Then, yeah. because um, if Christ died for sin, and He most certainly did, and He paid that price that is due sin. And he takes sin that seriously. If you want to remain in sin or think that you don't need to repent of your sin, for what purpose did Christ die? What sacrifice is there for that sin? Did Christ need to die at that point? So in some ways, then he's getting then to this kind of this heart of there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. It's not like you have to have a new sacrifice. It's not like any of those things, like, but, but asking that question. So then there's no longer a sacrifice for sin. You're in your sin then. You want to be deliberate in this willful, intentional hardening of your sin. There's no sacrifice for you then. Yeah. What are you? You're you're mocking Christ and trampling underfoot, and you're desecrating His blood that was shed as the blood of the covenant that cleanses and sanctifies us from all sin. You know, and and for these Christians then too who um, are you know communing the are taking into their mouths the very body and blood of Christ and remaining in this. I mean, that's profaning the very blood of Christ as well. I mean. There's a reason why as pastors, we, we take sin seriously. And if somebody is refusing to repent, we withhold the Lord's Supper from them. Not to be mean, but said that they would see the seriousness of it. You know, you're going to remain in this and you're going to, uh, you're going to treat and mock the body and blood of Christ in a way, you know, that is going to harm you in the long run and, and profane what, what God has given to you and um, to, to see those things. So we really, I mean, it's a very pastoral statement that he makes with this, but a very harsh proclamation. Um, you know, as they I see something so holy made so profane. Yeah, yeah. And then and then the last statement as in this verse that this also outrages the spirit of grace, which I'm not I'm not sure what's what's stronger here. This this really strikes me as a crescendo, but but I it's it's all very strong warning, no doubt. Absolutely. And and I think that, I mean it, it it really is connected to everything we've been talking about so far. But it's it's also we see that um, that the spirit is a is a gift of God to us, and it's given to us by God's grace that we have the Holy Spirit and and the waters of our baptism. Right? Jesus, um, Peter says in, in Acts two, receive uh, for, about baptism that you will receive the Holy Spirit in in, in those waters, and um it, and it's interesting that he says the spirit of grace as well because. Uh, when we think about then too, how kind of, you know, a few minutes ago, we were talking about everybody says, well, everybody sins. And what's another thing that we get thrown at you when we're confronted with our sin? Well, we're saved by grace, aren't we? Yeah, you are saved by grace, but shall we 
substitute continuance in the grace lay bound by no means, right? St. Paul says that, that in Romans. So to continue in these things is really then to, to insult the spirit of grace. Mm. You're insulting, you know, it, it's to, to try to mock that, oh, I'm saved by grace. I will continue in my sin and trample Christ underfoot. No, that's not how that, that, that is to mock God. And the scripture tells us God cannot be mocked. Yeah. Yeah. So then the, the writer of Hebrews, he, he brings up a couple of Old Testament citations so that, as we've seen throughout this sermon, the people can hear God's own voice speaking to them from the Scriptures. So talk to us about the, the citations that he brings up and how he applies them to his hearers in, these, in the last two verses of that first section. Sure. So in verses 30 to 31, you're talking about? Yes, sir. With the, yes, okay. Yeah, and so um, so he says that we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So letting that kind of exist as that unit. So then he's quoting from the Psalm of, Psalm of Moses in Deuteronomy 32. Specifically, we see verses 35 and 36. And verse 30, and, or excuse me, yeah, in verse 35, um, we have this uh, vengeance in mind and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip for the day of their calamity is at hand and their doom comes swiftly. Boy, that's pretty, pretty harsh. <laughs> and yeah. then ver- verse 36, for the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants when he sees their fall, um, when he sees their power is gone and there's none remaining bond or free. So, um, you know, it's easy for us to, to kind of abstract sin. And what I mean by that is, is for us to kind of think that God looks the other way when it comes to sin. Now, we have passages that clearly tell us, I will remember their sin no more. I put it away as far as east is from the west you know, or, and drown it in the depths of the sea. But going back to that sacrifice of Christ, why did Christ have to die? He had to die as the perfect sacrifice and substitute for us. Or God would not be just. God would be a liar. Sin has to be paid for. So God will take, you know, vengeance is, it does belong to God. God makes claim on his call that you remain outside of Christ, you will die in your sin. God is just in that judgment. Um, so even too, when we talk about the forgiveness of sins, when, when, when you have the forgiveness of sins, it's, it's at the cost of the blood of the son of God dying for you. So there's that coming into play here, but then, um, you know, this, this idea that the Lord will judge his people. Now then we, we have this, uh, then it is a fearful thing to fall into the, excuse me, fall into the hands of the living God. And, you know, you'll sometimes hear that, that passage, you know, quoted in, in various ways, but I mean, and, and this is a, a harsh preaching of the law. I mean, it is a very harsh thing. You want to go in your sin now. Okay. So he's playing this thought out. You want to remain in your sin, trample Christ underfoot. Um, you know, insult the spirit of grace, knowing that God will repay. God is not just going to forget about this. And that um, then it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You want to, so you want to go now to God's judgment throne in that state. Well, that's Mm. a fearful thing. Yeah. I mean, that really, that's kind of a, a a mic drop moment in terms of the preaching of the law here. Okay. Have it your way. Right. I mean, Romans one, he gave them over to these things then now stand before the living God and see what happens. It's yeah, not yeah, going it's, to end well for you. Yeah. yeah, especially in the context of what he's said throughout this epistle about the confidence that we have to approach God on his throne because of who Christ is as our high priest, 
as our brother who's made this sacrifice for us, you know, we've had that confidence. And now he says, look, if you're going to throw all that away, you're still in the in the Lord's hands. You're still going before his judgment seat. And now you're in his hands and in, in the one he's still the living God. And and that is a very fearful thing. Again, just given the, the full context of what he said so far, he really does drive home this pastoral warning to his people with these words of of warning the great seriousness of of the danger of apostasy. Now, having given that warning then, he does turn to instruction, to encouragement, to to the opposite of what he's warned against, and he starts that in verse 32 with words like this, "...recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated. You had compassion on those in prison. Help us, I, I won't read the whole thing again, but but help us into this turn that he makes now, starting there in verse 32. Sure, yeah, this is another instance, once again, of this instruction, right? He's admonished them, he's warned them, but now he's instruct- instructing them. So you can imagine then now, now here's, the, here's the, the preacher preaching this to the people. He said these words of, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, but recall the former days. When after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. So he's saying, here's this warning, but remember this confidence that you've been laid before, that you've been given in Christ. Remember the hardships that you have endured. Remember the sufferings that you've been endured. You remember how you endured early in your lives in Christ. Remember how you were enlightened by God's word when you first heard heard the gospel of salvation. That was back in chapters two and four. When you were catechized, you received baptism. So um, look back to what God has done for you and see the preservation that he has given to you, the comfort that he's given to you, the endurance he's given to you, and the confidence then as you even approach the throne of God in Christ and what that means. So um, so there's kind of this, this they had been exposed to the suffering at times, um, ridicule. Uh, they've been exposed to uh like, um, yeah, as he said in verse 32, or excuse me, 33, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated. So he's saying, you guys have been publicly ridiculed. You guys have undergone these things as belonging to Christ. Or you've been partners with those who are treated in this way. They've been suffered, they suffered by, you know, persecution by association, so to speak, too. You know, all of these things like that, um, because of their solidarity with those who are in prison, you know, I mean, we, 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 we see this time and again throughout the church, like with the whole body of Christ suffers together. You know, when our, our brothers and sisters in Christ are, are being persecuted and, and name whatever continent, you know, there's so many uh, instances, we're being persecuted too. You know, we're sharing in that. But this endurance of infliction has taught them some things. So listen to these things. And what has it taught you? Well, um, they were the victors in this. Um, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, um, but they, you were like Jesus, look beyond those things to the life eternal, to life to come, uh, life to come. Like they, you overcame these sufferings. Uh, you overcame your, uh, the, their opponents. You overcame these things. And so j- just as Jesus then endured his death as, as well and, and, and died and set aside the, the joy that was set before him, you know, he endured this. And he um, accomplished this for us so that now we have the victory in these things and the endurance and the confidence and 
and all that he's been been giving to us. Uh, that's what we have as we look to this. So he's, he's kind of this little snippet in the midst of this section of this sermon. Hey guys, remember, you've endured, the, you've endured these things, but yet God has shown you that you're the victor in that and that you have confidence. Yeah, I mean, and those last words there in verse 34, that you you have a better possession and an abiding one. I mean, we were talking about the danger of apostasy earlier, and it, I mean, I, I doubt that it was just one day they, they would wake up and think, I'm going to throw away my Christian faith today. That There was probably some kind of earthly persecution involved, some threat to livelihood, economics, whatever, that, that was involved. And here the writer encourages, remember, you've You've endured this before, and you did so because you have something better than that. You have something that lasts. Hold on to that confidence. Don't throw that away. Yeah, that's a great point. It makes you think of like, you know, the parable of the sower, any number of things that over time or the the cares of this life, you know, all of those things like that. Or, I mean, sadly, as pastors, I'm I'm sure you've encountered this too. You see somebody fall away from the faith. Um hopefully the Lord willing to be restored someday, but it, it isn't like you just wake up one day and sit and think, I'm going to, I'm going to, um, you know, deny Christ, right? No, it's, you get caught up in these things. Or, I mean, even going back to, I guess, I'm kind of remiss in saying this too. How did the, right before this section started off about uh, not neglecting to gather together, yeah. you know, that was verse 25, you know, you, it's, it's kind of like, uh, you know, you see the, uh, the meme go around social media, it's kind of um, kind of cheesy, but it's true. <laughs> you know, you, the more you miss church, the more you don't miss church, yeah. right? You kind of come hardened to that. Uh, it's, you, you deal with those things like that. But I mean, it's the same way. The more we separate ourselves from the things of God, the more we remain in our sin, the more we become accustomed to it and live in it and, um, and those things like that. So that reminder of, guys, this isn't who God called you to be. This isn't who God has preserved you to be. This isn't, you know, don't throw away this worthless substitute or this eternal um, treasure that you have that will not fade away. Um, you know, look beyond that. Don't get caught up in that. Yeah. So he, in verse 35, he uses that very language. He says, don't throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. Take us into that that, I mean, that's language that we've heard before. Remind us of the, the fullness of that. Yeah. So this confidence to approach the throne of, uh, of God, the fr- confidence that you have access to God, too. I mean, um, last night we were, my wife and I, we were um, doing memory work with our kids on the, uh, the, uh, the introduction to the Lord's Prayer, you know, and we were talking about, um, you know, what it means to call God our Father and to be his children. And we were talking with them about how that God who created everything, even things that we, I mean, can't even see and know, but yet we can call him our father and we're his children. To have that kind of access to God, to have God's ear and to have, you know, to know all those things because Christ is our high priest as he laid before us, right? He's the the one who has has offered up himself. He's the one who um, gives us that assurance of faith, a great priest over the house of God, as at the previous section, um, and our hope and the promises of God, are, which are faithful. I mean, all of these things like that, but, but to, that's the confidence that we have to know that God actually, that you can pray to God and that God will actually hear and not just hear you, but will answer your prayers for the sake of Christ. 
And not only that as then too, but go take that forward to the final judgment day that you have the confidence to know that with 100% certainty and even more than 100% certainty that I know where I stand before God because of Christ. I'm righteous and God will say to me, enter into you know, the glory that I have prepared for you. I know God will say that to me. That's the confidence. It's not just wishful thinking. It's a sure and certain confidence because of who Christ is. And I yeah. do not want to throw that away for one instance. That's what God has given to me. It's what he's given to all of us who have been baptized into his name. And we draw near to him with that confidence too. We, we don't draw away from him. We draw near to him as the book of Hebrews often uses that phrase to draw near, you know, um, draw closer to God with that confidence that you had. So talk about the role of endurance as he brings it up then in verse 36. Sure. Yeah. So in verse 36, for you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may see what is promised. So they need this endurance. Um, so uh, earlier in, in 32 to um we, we uh, just saw 32 to 34 just a few minutes ago that their present and future endurance kind of together, there was a corporateness to this that he talked about, like their suffering and their persecution and all these things like that. Some of it by association is whatever. Um, their, their present endurance is also a thing as the body of Christ, and they will receive what God has promised. Um, so uh, he's going to explain kind of um, uh, what this God's will is. In, in a little bit about um, in the next two verses when he talks about, you know, the coming Christ, he's going to kind of uh, play that out. But, um, but this, uh, this endurance to not shrink from Christ, really, to see that, that, uh, and trusting in God's promises together as the body of Christ, and, in, and as individually members of it, you have this need of endurance to persevere to the end, which is a work of God, you know, that you, that we see, um, but that you will receive what is promised and what is promised. Well, it's, it's eternal life. It's eternal joy and those things like that. Now, as he moves into verses 37 and 38, he brings up the Old Testament again so that we can hear the Word of God speak to us. Uh, what, what passages is he referencing there in verses 37 and 38? Yeah, there are two prophets um, primarily that he's kind of referencing, Isaiah and Habakkuk. Um, and, uh, and what he does with this, too, is he really kind of, he kind of nuances these in a way, too, that really drive home this, this understanding of the confidence of faith over and above this willful sinning. So as we look at kind of this, so he preaches, um, alluding to Isaiah 26, 20, come, my people, enter your chambers and shut your doors behind you. Hide yourselves for a little while until the fury has passed by. There's that language of the Passover. He brings that up. Isaiah 26, 11, O Lord, your hand is lifted up, but they do not see it. Let them see your zeal for your people and be ashamed. Let the fire for your adversaries consume them. So you find safety with God in his place of refuge. So you remember a few verses prior to this, we, we heard about God's fiery and consuming the adversaries. But what happens when you find refuge in God is that you, you have, um, you're safe from these things language of the Passover, language of being saved from our adversaries. So um, in Hebrews 6.18, we heard, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we have fled for refuge, might, um, we, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us, right? So he's bringing this language down, he's kind of twisting it, right? Or flipping it, I guess, is maybe a better way of saying it. So that warning that he's, he gave to us He's seeing that when we have this confidence in Christ, 
when we draw near to him, when we um, hope in him and, and his promises, that we actually have, um, we see that we are the ones then who are not burned. We, our adversaries are the ones that are burned. We also then um, see that what is our future in this, as he goes now to Habakkuk 2, 4, two 3 to 4, for still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. So now here he's using similar languages, language, but he, he nuances it a bit. So he's talking about the coming of Christ at the end, but he's talking about the righteous one lives by his faith, their faith. So now as they see their sin before them, they see that warning to turn away from that willful sin. Where do they find their righteousness and their faith, their faith in Christ? Gee, they find their confidence in the one who is their high priest. They find comfort and refuge in the one who has given them this faith to stand before the throne of God in the righteousness of their faith, which is to say it's nothing other than the righteousness of Christ himself, who has made atonement for the sin their sin where the sacrifice does remain because they're covered with the righteousness of Jesus. Yeah, that's a that's a glorious thing that we hear here. And I think this is a, a bit of an aside, but isn't it remarkable that that Habakkuk 2 figures so prominently in the New Testament of all the of all the places in the the Old Testament that that you find a foundational verse, you have Habakkuk 2 cited both in Romans and here in the book of Hebrews. I don't know if that argues for or against Pauline authorship of Hebrews, but that's probably, <laughs> we're past that point in the conversation today. But it's just, it's remarkable yeah. that Habakkuk is so, so, so central to the New Testament here. Absolutely. Yeah, it is. I mean, it just goes to show kind of just the totality of the scriptures, though. Yeah. It's easy for us to think, you know, like some obscure prophet, right? I mean, everybody hears of Isaiah, or we quote, you know, and rightfully so, those things like that. But don't forget about Habakkuk right? Don't forget about him. He teaches us about the righteousness of faith. And even as we go through then the book of Hebrews too, you know, it, it comes back to the very thing, you know, that Paul teaches in Romans that Jesus, I mean, that, that I mean, that of what we have, our justification by grace through faith, it's here. It's right here in Hebrews. Um, so as much as, uh, you know, in the early church or throughout history, things have been spoken against maybe Hebrews, um, you know, I don't know if you talked about the distinctions between like um, homologomena and antilogomena and those things like that. But when we talk about this, but but there still is this, it, uh, the righteousness of faith rings really clearly, you know, through this. And even in this section that we so often, it gets overshadowed by the, the warning against apostasy, and rightfully so, what shines through with great comfort, the righteousness of our faith in Christ. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, that's where the author is headed in chapter 11, perhaps the most famous section in Hebrews, to talk about this this faith that receives righteousness from Christ. Now, he, he really sets the stage for chapter 11, then, with the way that he, he preaches in verse 39 from these texts in Isaiah and Habakkuk. We've got about three minutes here, Pastor Wright. Take us into verse 39, help us to wrap up with what he says there. Sure. So he kind of um, comes back then, kind of in, in a first plural thing now. He, he was doing you know, he, he says we again, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Um, so going back to what I said again, it, so this is a sermon. If we take it in that way, you know, it's a letter, but as a sermon, right? Here's this warning. Here's this comfort. But who are we in this? We're not the ones who shrink back. We're not the ones who are destroyed. We're not the ones who God's fire consumes the adversaries. 
No, we're those who have faith. We're the ones who pre uh, preserve their souls by the grace of God. I mean, is, is that. So there's this, um, this, uh, this great comfort, you know, that he, he preaches to them. He lays before them the, that at the end of this section that has such jarring, you know, even just at times, you know, terrifying words. Of, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. I mean, it truly is. Where does he leave us in this section of where we are? We're not those who are destroyed or shrink back. We're the ones who have faith. We're the ones who have our confidence in Christ, the ones who endure in God and, and persevere in the faith. And I think that's a helpful thing as we think about, you know, as we read the scriptures or even as we're listening to these things at home um, or, you know, as, as pastors or whatever the case may be, um, God's final word is a word of, of comfort and a word of gospel to us in Christ. Um, you know, it, even when we talk about issues about the Christian life, uh, the law doesn't produce the Christian life. The gospel does. The law informs us. And, 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 and so we don't downplay those things in the slightest. We actually have kind of lost some of the emphasis of, of understanding the seriousness of sin and the seriousness of the Christian life. But we rest, put all of our eggs in the basket, so to speak, in terms of our confidence where it belongs. It's the righteousness of our faith. And it's the confidence of Christ who has called us um, and enlightened us to be his own people. And we're not then those people who shrink back, but we're the ones who have faith and preserve our souls. Pastor Andy Wright serves at St. John's Lutheran Church in Topeka, Kansas. He's been helping us today to study Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 to 39. Pastor Wright, thanks for being our guest today. Thanks. Great to be here. Christ has given us an unimaginable gift, access to our Father's heavenly throne. This is not something to be thrown away, trampling him underfoot, profaning his blood, acting as if his sacrifice is nothing, for to do so is to throw away everything that he has given. Rather, this calls for endurance, a gift of God through his word. Continue to gather together, continue to hear that word, remain among those who have faith and preserve their souls. That is who we are in Christ. I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about Hebrews 10, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. It's always a joy to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.